This is Marathon Training Academy podcast, episode 424. This podcast is brought to you by Lagoon Sleep. With Lagoon Pillows, you'll fall asleep faster because you're matched with the pillow that will be most comfortable for your sleep position and body type. Go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash MTA and take their awesome two-minute sleep quiz to find your match. Use the code MTA for 15% off your first purchase. Lagoonsleep.com forward slash MTA. And thanks to our friends at Sidekick, you can use their muscle scraping tools to work on your hips, quads, feet, or whatever's bothering you. Check out the My Personal PT Bundle over at SidekickTool.com slash MTA. You can get 15% off with that link. Just go to SidekickTool.com forward slash MTA. And thanks to Oladance Open Earbuds. They have 360 degree superior sound, but they never enter the ear, so there's no ear fatigue. Plus, you never lose track of what's happening around you. Visit oladance.com and use the promo code MTA20 to save 20%. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with Brad Stolberg, performance coach and author of the new book, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. And don't forget, as an Academy member, you can get access to all of our back podcast episodes, training plans, and awesome online community. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. All right, so Angie, you recently finished uh, the Tough Mudder Pittsburgh, and this was actually your first obstacle race. I didn't go with you. You went with some lady friends. I think folks really should hear about the electric shock and the Arctic enema. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a group of friends and I decided a few months ago that we wanted to do a Tough Mudder, and one lady in the group is like long nails, like extremely not obstacle horse or like any kind of exercise type person. And then she was doing some research on it. She's like, you mean the mud is not just a metaphor? There's actual mud on the course? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there was actual mud on the course. Um, but we did the 5K, which had 12 obstacles. And they get you like down and dirty right away, crawling through mud under barbed wire. So real mud, real mud. <laughs> A lot of the obstacles were very challenging. Um, so we were feeling pretty good about ourselves, getting towards the end, really happy to be done. You know, some of us have bruises and blood and, <laughs> you know, we're starting to get pretty tired. Um, but of course, the last three obstacles were the ones that were the most challenging for me. Um, there's one called Everest, which is basically like this greased quarter pipe. I think it's like a 13-foot quarter pipe. Wow. And, you know, you're supposed to get to the top of it. Well, the intimidating thing, I mean, one of the intimidating things was you get there, there's like 100 people in line. Everyone's watching you try to get up. Yes. Uh, I managed to climb, cling, scuttle my way to near the top. And then there's people at the top who were extending their arms down to try to, like, help pull you over. Mm -hmm. But you had to let go of the rope with one hand to try to grab another hand. We managed to get over the wall, then you have to climb down on this rope ladder type thing on the other side. So I'm just like shaky, like feeling all my energy is depleted just from all that. Like my hand is cramped from like hanging onto the rope so tightly. Then we get to one called the Arctic Enema, which is basically a deep mud pit that is filled with 
ice cold water, I think like 34 degree water Fahrenheit. So they make you submerge yourself. You're submerged in this ice cold water. It is so cold. It just sucks any of your breath away. So after all this, the final insult to injury, right? The final obstacle is the electric shock. That's right. So there's all these live wires hanging (laughs) and there's this mud pit. And then there's like a couple of obstacles you have to go over in the mud pit. So we get up there, we're watching a few people go through. There's this one lady who gets halfway and there's kind of like a break in the electrical field and she's just screaming and she like can't go on. You know, people are trying to encourage her to go and we're kind of waiting because we didn't want to go with her in the middle, you know. How hard are the shocks? Well, I was thinking like, how bad can it be? You know, I was actually standing there being judgmental, which I feel bad about now (laughs) because I realized what it was like. So finally, it's our turn and there's kind of an MC standing there and he turns to us like, oh, you, you ladies together. We're like, yeah. He's like, you guys should all join arms. We've only had one other group do that. And it's a real crowd pleaser. So we're like, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So we all link arms, step in and the first electric shock hits. And I wasn't thinking of how electric current travels through people, you know, it conducts. Yeah. And so it felt like we got four times the shock because we we're all like experiencing each other's shocks. <laughs> <laughs> so instantly we drop arms, every man for himself trying to get through. Um, so most of us get through except for my sister Autumn falls down like paralyzed. Her amygdala is like this is a life and death situation and she just can't get out. So one of our friends kind of held up to try to get her out. So she leans over to grab Autumn and her butt is in the air and she's getting shocked like multiple times. It looks like she's twerking. <laughs> she, you know, she's yelping. I mean, the shock felt really, I don't know, it felt really strong to me. I kind of had a feeling I could have a heart attack in here. I literally felt the shock like in my heart. Autumn, your sister, she is stuck in there in fight or flight, crouching low underneath the wires. She's like laying flat on her belly, like unable to move. So you guys had to pull her out. So we had to pull her out. Yes, I was probably a bad sister because I was thinking like, I'm going to try to get her out without getting shocked myself. Whereas our friend Irene was like taking it in the butt. (laughs) You're thinking, love you, Autumn. Uh, See you. See you at the beer tent. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty intense. So we finally like all stumble through to the other side and, and that's the end of the race. And then like a bored looking volunteer like, gives us this headband <laughs> for like covered in mud. Great job. Here's your headband. <laughs> they didn't even say great job. They're like here. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course, you know, you're covered in mud, soaking wet. We were very thankful to get showers that day. I think it took three hair washes to get the mud out of my hair and like a week later we were still finding like dirt in our ears and you know still suffering bruises so tough mothers at the tough mutter we want to give some quick shout outs to folks in our community who are running races and reporting back and sharing photos so angie what do you got for us Yes, this comes from Diane. She says, Cedar City Half Marathon. Thank you, MTA coach Jen, for pushing me through these past 12 weeks. I finished second place in my age group. Nice. And we'd like to say congrats to a longtime listener, Steve Plummer uh, from the UK. I actually got to hang out with Steve and his wife at the Beer Lovers Marathon earlier this year um, in Belgium. Steve just ran his 50th marathon at the Richmond Run Fest in the UK. And he finished in 4.23.06 and is a very hot day at the Richmond Run Fest. In fact, this is from a Runner's World article. The headline said, 
race director cancels marathon with 1,000 runners still on the course. Due to extreme heat at the Richmond Run Fest, water tables were empty and 10 runners were hospitalized. Thankfully, no one died. Temperatures reached 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Yikes, that sounds miserable. Congratulations, Steve, on marathon number 50. It sounds like a very memorable one. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. And also congrats to our client, Kofo, who finished the Richmond Run Fest. She said, pleased to have finished Richmond Run Fest Marathon in London. The joys of the British weather meant that an autumn race ended up in high summer temperatures. I managed to finish before the course closure, and I'm pleased to add the 14th marathon medal to my collection. Shout out to MTA coach Nicole, the best anyone could ask for. She always has my back and creates awesome kick-ass training plans. We'd like to say also congrats to Coach Athena on our team who finished the Pikes Peak Marathon in Colorado. This is a beast of a marathon. And finally, we got an awesome um, shout out here to one of our longtime clients, JJ. She was able to qualify for Boston at the Revel Big Cottonwood Marathon. And this is after a 10-year journey to earn that BQ. She finished in 332.45. She says, so I know this post is a little late, but I finally qualified for Boston at the Revel Big Cottonwood Marathon. It's taken me 27 marathons to BQ. My first marathon in 2013 was five hours and 12 minutes. So I want everyone to know that sometimes it takes 27 marathons and years and years to reach a goal. And that just because it's tough, that doesn't mean you should stop trying. We love endurance running because it's hard. So don't let the difficulty stop you from putting in the work. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story with us, JJ, and super congrats on qualifying for Boston. Yeah, sometimes it just takes quite a few marathons and quite a few races and attempts because, you know, life gets in the way and other stuff can happen. Angie, you can probably identify with that. It took quite a few races for you. Yeah, it took 25 marathons and trying to think how many years. Yeah, almost seven years. Well, congrats to everyone out there taking action in your health and fitness. Hey, by the way, come out and meet me at the Boulderthon in Boulder, Colorado. I'm going to be doing a live podcast interview at the Expo with uh, ultra runner Scott Jurek, October the 7th. It'll be at 2 p.m. right downtown. If you want to sign up for one of their signature races, you can uh, use the code MTA20 for 20% off over at boulderthon.org. And of course, I'll also be at the Richmond Marathon this year, and it's going to be a huge year in Richmond, Virginia. I'll be there doing a live event at the Expo. And of course, uh, MTA meetup after the race. And check out who also is going to be at the Richmond Marathon this year. Martinez Evans from Run Slow AF. Uh, We just had him on the podcast. Um, Another Mother Runner podcast folks will be there. The November Project will be there. Lindsey Hine from I'll Have Another podcast will also be there. So huge year. The Richmond community just really embraces this race. It's a nonprofit. There's tons of people along the course out there. There's neighborhoods that really go all out. There's junk food stations and a pickle juice stop. And the race organizers do an awesome job. This is a uh, top 25 Boston qualifier. It's mostly flat. There are some rolling hills. Great for first timers. You can do the full, the half, or the 8K. Hey, whatever your jam is. And let me know if you're going to be there. Richmondmarathon.org. All right. Well, in this episode, we're talking with Brad Stolberg. I think this is probably his third time on the podcast. He just keeps writing these really cool books. We always love talking to him. He's a very thoughtful guy. His new book is called Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. So Angie, what else can we tell people about Brad Stolberg? 
Well, Brad Stilberg researches, writes, and coaches on health, well-being, and sustainable excellence. He's also the best-selling author of The Practice of Groundedness. He's also co-author of the book Peak Performance. He regularly contributes to the New York Times. He's on the faculty of the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health. He works with executives, entrepreneurs, physicians, and athletes on their mental skills and overall well-being, and lives with his family in Asheville, North Carolina. So in this interview, you're going to hear how we get change wrong as humans. And since change is inevitable, how do you thrive during change, especially as a runner, because you're not going to be the same runner five years from now that you are today. Here's our conversation with Brad Stolberg. We're on the podcast now with Brad Stolberg. He's author of the book, Master of Change. Brad, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I really loved your last book, The Practice of Groundedness. And I kind of thought like, this one's going to be good, obviously, because you're an excellent writer. And I was really totally blown away. It was just what I needed to hear at the time. And I think it's really going to resonate with our audience. So kind of go into what inspired you to write this book. I'd say that the biggest inspiration was personal for this one, as is so many of my books. Um, But in the last five years, I've experienced a whole lot of pretty significant changes, uh, some good and some not so good. I moved across the country. I quit my corporate job to go full-time as an author. My last book, The Practice of Groundedness, sold really well. I became a parent for the first time. I became a parent again for the second time. I also had a chronic condition develop in my leg that essentially forced me out of running, which had been just an enormous part of my identity for a long period of time. I had orthopedic surgery to try to solve the problem, and I'd say it solved it halfway, so I can do more than I would have been able to, but I still can't compete. I still can't race like I used to. So yeah, just a lot of changes in my own life. And then, of course, there's the massive societal change that we've all lived through over the last couple of years, which is the coronavirus pandemic. And I distinctly remember being in the kitchen on my wife's iPad one morning in 2021, early on in the year, reading all of these headlines about when we're going to get back to normal. And um, something about that phrasing just rubbed me the wrong way. I wasn't sure what. and, uh, And it led to the kernel of the idea that became this book. Yeah, like what is normal? And I think that's what really came out to me is like, we do get change wrong. And I really didn't realize how I got it so wrong until I was reading just in the introduction. I know I've fallen into the mindset of trying to get back to where I was before. And that's one of the things you talk about. Maybe you can kind of talk about how we get change wrong and how that holds us back from actually thriving through change. The biggest mistakes that we make in the midst of change are trying to avoid it, uh, resisting it when it's there, sacrificing all agency, so just throwing our hands up and saying, well, there's nothing I can do. And then most commonly is trying to get back to where we were before the change or trying to get back to stability too fast. And these are no fault of our own. This is due to a long-standing model for change that is what we all grew up with, and it's called homeostasis. And it essentially describes change as a pattern of order or stability, disorder or change, and then trying to get back to stability as fast as you can. And homeostasis as a model inherently says that change is bad. We should try to avoid it, resist it, and then we should try to get back to normal. 
this has been the prevailing way that folks have thought about change for the last couple hundred years. But more recently, in the research community, scientists stepped back and they said, you know, it's actually not an accurate model for change. When you look at individuals and organizations, even entire cultures that really flourish in the midst of change, it's true that they crave stability, but they achieve that stability through change. And they coined this term allostasis, which describes change as a cycle of order or stability, then disorder, change. So, so far, it's the same. But the key difference is the last phase is reorder. So yes, you arrive at stability, but that stability is somewhere new. And I think that the etymology of these two words tells the whole story. So homeostasis comes from the Latin root homo, which means same, and stasis, which means standing. So it says that you achieve stability by staying the same. And allostasis comes from the Latin root allo, which means change, and then stasis, which means standing. So it says that you achieve stability by changing. Mm. And that has such an elegant double meaning, which is like you can achieve stability through change. And the way to do it is by changing, at least to some extent. I think that's so freeing because it is literally impossible to get back to the exact same thing again. Like change is life. And if you're not changing, you're you're dead. <laughs> um, so like the homeostasis model is literally impossible because we're never going to be that same person again. That's exactly right. And I think that while this has so many implications for all of our lives, for our professional components of our lives, for the personal components of our lives, I know of great interest to you and your listeners is the athletic parts of our lives. And I think that we so often get into this trap of homeostasis as athletes. And I think it comes to three core areas. The first is when we have injuries and we try to get back to where we were before the injury and we try to do it really fast, often too fast. Or worse, we resist the change altogether. We pretend that we're not injured and we try to train through it and we end up making dumb mistakes. We don't adjust our training plan. So that's one big area. The second big area that all athletes experience is aging. Even if you live in a bubble and you never get hurt, you're going to age and aging is going to affect your performance and your relationship with your body and how it performs and how you participate in the sport. And then the third big change that we all go through are successes and failures. So we conceive of ourselves as a runner that can do X, that can run under four hours, under three hours, a 20-minute 5K, whatever the standard is. They're all arbitrary. And then we become someone that either did that or didn't do it. And that can have a change to how we see ourselves as an athlete. That is so true because I think back to times where I, in my head, I'm a certain hour marathoner, but then I've gone through a period of injury and have had to go through physical therapy and like ease my way back. And then the reality is that, you know, I'm not that marathoner anymore. I am a whole different one. Yeah, that's right. I think that you see that the athletes that have the most sustainable long-term performance, they are very different athletes at different points of their life. Uh, and I think that there's something really beautiful about that, that you say like, you know, what is the running identity of Shalane Flanagan or Kara Gaucher or Meb Kaflesky or pick your favorite American marathoner. And, um, it would depend on at what point in time, some, sometimes it's a 10 K runner or someone on the track. Other times it's a marathoner. Sometimes it's someone that is not necessarily performing that well by objective measures, but doing great things for the sport off the road. Other times they're really focused on what they're doing on the road. But it's the sum of all these unique identities that they've held over the course of a career that ultimately make them the athlete that they are. I really like the framework of order, disorder, reorder, that hero's journey and that just meta narrative. There's so many you know, great movies and stories, like really all of them have that same pattern. 
Like even the Bible has it, right? There's order in the garden and there's disorder uh, after Genesis chapter three, and then it all ends in reorder. So Angie, right now, maybe you're going through disorder or you're going through reorder and you're running, which, what do you think it is? <laughs> um, I think it's reordering, honestly. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Um, the Franciscan friar whose work I admire, Richard Rohr, calls this the universal wisdom pattern. Uh, yeah. Joseph Campbell calls it the hero's journey. So like you said, the hero starts out at home and then they're called to the journey and they go through this massive disorder. They leave home, they face their demons, and then they tend to come back home and they're in some ways the same, but in other ways different. Yep. You were talking about household names in, in terms of runners like Shalane Flanagan, Kara Goucher. We actually had Kara on the podcast earlier this year. With all those runners whose stories that we know, you can see the order disorder, reorder pattern in their life because they've all dealt with injury and various setbacks. Yeah, that's right. And being able to navigate that cycle skillfully yeah. uh, is really the whole premise of, of what I've been working on for the past couple of years and the research and reporting and finally writing of this book, which is it's one thing to have this conceptual framing that, hey, order, disorder, reorder, like we're not getting back to where we were. Homeostasis is kind of old news. We need this more allostatic view of change. Then, of course, the next question that everyone has is the question that I had is, well, how do you navigate that cycle as gracefully as possible? How do you work through the disorder phase to get to reorder as best you can? Yeah. Does it start with your mindset? I mean, I know in the book you talk about being open to the flow of life, and I think the other one is expect it to be hard. Yeah. Speak to that person who's feeling they're in a period of disorder right now. <laughs> so the, the key construct that the book explores is this term that I coined called rugged flexibility. And uh, most people hear these two words and they think of them as diametrically opposed opposites. Because when you're rugged, you're strong, you're determined, you're robust, you're durable, you're hard. When you're flexible, you're soft, you're supple, you bend really easily. And what I found in my reporting and my research is that individuals who are able to navigate change really well, they're not rugged or flexible, they're both rugged and flexible. So they have this non-dual mindset that in some ways they are very determined and gritty and tough, but in other ways they're very adaptable and flexible and smooth and soft. So I think the start of this mindset is that when we face change, we don't have to think of ourselves just as rugged, just as over-controlling and fixing and staying the same, nor do we need to think of ourselves as just flexible, as just going with the flow. We can be both of those things at the same time. And you're right, the two big conduits to a rugged and flexible mindset that I explore in the book is this notion of first, just accept that change is reality and that you can be stable through change. You can't be stable by avoiding change, but you can be stable through change. And then the second is this notion of really expecting whatever it is that you're dealing with uh, to be challenging. There's a really interesting shorthand equation that our mood at any given point of time is a function of our expectations and our reality. Mm -hmm. uh, more particularly, it's our reality minus our expectations. So the example I give to make this really clear, uh, just how profound it is to have like proper expectations, is actually a marathon. And I use this not just for runners. So imagine that you're doing a marathon and you expect mile 20 to feel easy. Well, what happens if you do that? You get to mile 20, you're going to drop out of the race. You're going to think something's horribly wrong absolutely mm -hmm. going to freak out. Whereas if you're running a marathon and you expect mile 20 to be hard and to be challenging, when you get there, it's still going to suck, but you're not going to freak out as much. You're certainly not going to drop out of the race. And on a good day, you might even be pleasantly surprised. 
So same mile of the race, same feelings in your body, but one pathway you quit, the other pathway you keep going, and it's purely based on your expectation. And I think so often we go into these challenging periods and we have a slightly too positive or too rosy expectation, thinking like, well, think positive, be positive, it's going to help me through. When in fact, the research shows the opposite, that it's better to have a slightly negative expectation and to let yourself be pleasantly surprised. There's this beautiful phrase that was coined by the philosopher and psychologist Viktor Frankl called tragic optimism. And what he says is that, yes, we should be very accurate in our expectations. And there is a lot of tragedy in life. And he wasn't talking about running. He was talking about things like loss, grief, pain, suffering. And to be delusional about those things does no good. You just suffer. Mm -hmm. However, we can also be optimistic. We can accept that life is inherently full of hardship and challenge and struggle. And in spite of that, or maybe even because of it, trudge forward with an optimistic attitude nonetheless. And I think that's really what it's about. It's about maintaining hopefulness and optimism while at the same time not becoming deluded by it and acknowledging that there is a lot about life or running or your job or whatever it might be that is going to be hard. And there are a lot of changes that you are not going to be happy about happening. And yet you can accept them for what they are. You can see them clearly. And the work of a mature adult is not falling into nihilism and staying optimistic even so. I like it. Good stuff. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. Quick break to thank our new sponsor, Lagoon Sleep. We are so excited to have a pillow company as a sponsor because Angie is an absolute sleep zealot. I mean, I like sleep. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> I do. I do love sleep. I love optimizing, improving my sleep. That's what I'm saying. I get really cranky if I don't get yes. my necessary sleep, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, the key to staying energetic and injury free while training is getting optimal sleep. Um, in fact, a prominent study of runners found that those not getting adequate sleep were 170% more likely to get injured. So I've been using the Lagoon Pillow for a couple months now, and it's really helped me improve my sleep. I am very picky about my pillow. I am very prone to neck pain. And so that baby better be dialed in. And they have that handy quiz that you go through to pair you with the perfect pillow. So with Lagoon Pillows, you'll fall asleep faster because you're matched with that pillow that's most comfortable for your sleep position and your body type. Take that two-minute quiz to see the perfect match for you. Just go over to lagoonsleep.com MTA, and you can save 15% on your first purchase with our handy code MTA. That's lagoonsleep.com MTA for 15% off. And speaking of recovery, we'd also like to thank our sponsor, Sidekick, makers of muscle scraping tools for runners. And you might think, oh, that sounds painful. Muscle scraping. Well, it's not as painful as it sounds. It's just working on that stressed tissue so that blood flows better to that place. That's right. You actually use very light pressure. So you're not getting in there and you're not going to cause any damage. My sister Autumn and I did a long hike on Monday. So we were on our feet several hours and I got home and my I could tell my left foot was kind of cranky. So I took the Eclipse scraper and just kind of went over my foot with that. And then the next morning I scraped again and I've been completely fine. It has not turned into a full-blown episode. So whatever you're dealing with, if it's plantar fasciitis, shin splints, IT band tightness, even knee pain, muscle scraping therapy is going to work by helping to heal the stress tissue in your body faster. Yeah, we recommend the My Personal PT Bundle. It has two of their most popular tools, the Echo and the Eclipse. Check them out, sidekicktool.com slash MTA to get 15% off your order. Get these awesome tools every runner needs, sidekicktool.com slash MTA. 
I also enjoyed the part where you talk about how the brain sort of as it's constructing its reality and our experience, it puts more weight on the very last thing that we experienced in the process versus the whole thing. It's like when you take your kids to the park when they're young and you, you say, okay, it's time to go. And they don't want to leave. So they, they're mad and they say, I didn't have any fun at all. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, okay. 10 minutes ago, you had a huge smile on your face. <laughs> I bringing it back to running, I have a, a theory as to why more people enjoy marathon running than running the mile. The end of a mile sucks. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're tasting blood in your mouth. If you run a mile hard, that is, you're tasting steel and metallic and blood in your mouth. You can hardly breathe. Like there's no enjoying the finish of a mile. Like the race is over and you just sit in pain. Whereas running a hard marathon, if you pace it right, you know, the last minute or two, you can generally realize, whoa, like this is what I'm doing. And you can really soak it yeah. in and you got the the metal that they put on you and the little aluminum jacket to keep you warm and then the snacks and like you get that euphoria and that's what you hold on to. Whereas at the end of a mile, it's just pain. Yeah. Races have done a good job of making the end of the marathon a very fun experience because that's, that's what we remember. And then we think, let's sign up for another one. <laughs> Even though it sucks so hard at mile 20. That's exactly right. <laughs> I just did a, a Tough Mudder this last weekend with a group of friends. And I was kind of contrasting that to a running race, you know, like a half marathon marathon. Um, you know, because you do it at, often at a half marathon marathon, you have that sense of elation, you know, kind of coming into the finisher shoot and people are cheering and there's an announcer and you're just like, yes, I'm, I did this and get the medal. People put it around your neck and like there's that whole journey you go through. But like the tough mudder, they save the, the last three obstacles are the worst, in my opinion. <laughs> you're like, just come out of this like electric shocks, feeling like you might have a heart attack. And then some board volunteer throws a headband at you and you're like, that's it. <laughs> I almost died. <laughs> <laughs> they should read Brad's book. That's what they need exactly. to do. Exactly. The they can have you come and keynote at the Tough Mudder. Yeah, I got I got all kinds of thoughts on Tough Mudder, but that's that's not the the point of our conversation today. <laughs> you know, I think I think anything that gets people moving is good. And if Tough Mudder is what it takes to get people moving, that's great. And I think it's a very real challenge. Uh, I think that running a marathon seriously is as tough as it needs to be. And a lot of these other things are just to me like bravado or like, I don't want to say fake toughness, but like running through a quasi electrical field. <laughs> it's interesting, but I would argue like keeping your head in the marathon at mile 22 is even harder. Hmm. But that's the elitist runner in me, and I probably just <laughs> offended some people. So my apologies. I'm self-aware that that is the elitist runner in me, even though I'm not competing anymore. But in all seriousness, ultimately, I think if you're moving your body and you're doing it in community and you're challenging yourself and you're enjoying it, then whatever you're doing is working for you. 100%. And I always advise people, don't make running your only thing. Because yeah. something is going to come along, life, change, you know, all injury. those things, injury. Yeah. And if that is your only thing, it is going to really throw you for a huge loop. Ooh, nice segue to the second part of the book. So this was my one of my favorite parts of the book anyways, on um, a rugged and flexible identity. And the story I want to tell first is that of the speed skater Niels Vanderpool. So Vanderpool won gold medals in the 5K and 10K in the 2022 Winter Games, and he shattered the world record. So he is the best long course speed skater to ever step foot on this planet and probably will be for quite some time. However, in the lead up to the 2022 Games, Vanderpool felt that he was underperforming and he tried to identify what was driving this and his training was really dialed in. He wasn't getting injured, but he felt a lot of fear every time that he stepped into the speed skating oval. 
So then he asked himself, well, why am I feeling this fear? And what he found, what he realized is that his entire identity was fused to speed skating. So there was no Niels Vanderpool other than Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. And because of that, if he had a misstep or to your point, an injury, if any little thing went wrong, it wasn't just sorrow in the sport. It was his entire life, not his livelihood, his life, his whole being was speed skating. So he decided to do something at the time that is pretty radical for an Olympian, which is take a normal weekend. So starting on Friday evening, all the way to Monday morning, his life had nothing to do with speed skating. It sounds like my weekend. <laughs> then you're doing it right. He went out for beer. He went out for beer and pizza with his friends. He went hiking. He started reading books. He got more involved in his community. And he developed other sources of identity beyond just speed skating. And paradoxically, that allowed him to perform so much better because he was no longer racing with the pressure of his entire identity being tied to this thing. And he realized that he could even get injured and be okay because he had other sources of meaning in his life. So the metaphor I've come to use is to develop an identity that is able to be really rugged and flexible during change. The first thing that we need to do is to think of our identity like a house. And if you've just got one room in your house and that one room floods, you're kind of screwed. Whereas if you have a few other rooms in your house, even if one room floods, you can go seek refuge and have stability, find an anchor in those other rooms while the flood sorts itself out. And the rooms don't have to be equal size. You don't have to spend the same amount of time in each room. You've just got to have more than one. Sometimes I've talked to like elite athletes about this and like, well, I only have one room. What do I do? And it's like, well, you got to make an addition. No different than a house. Like when you outgrow that one room or when it's not big enough for all that you are, make an addition. And that can be so simple. That can be taking up gardening. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just making sure you never just identify with one thing. In the example of running, if you get injured, it becomes like this traumatic event because the sole source of your meaning is gone. In the case of parenting, if your whole identity is taking care of kids, well, then when your kids leave the house, you have this empty nester syndrome. Entrepreneurs, they have their whole identity tied up in their work. And then it comes time to retire or their company doesn't work out. Well, then it's like, well, who am I if not this thing? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's just so important to have multiple components to your identity. I agree. And I think if I can get real here, the things that I was curious about when I was researching this were first and foremost, well, what about the tale of like the obsessed genius that just has to go all in on this one thing? And what I found is that we tend to be told those stories because they make for really entertaining television and documentaries. But the vast majority of people who achieve great success do it more in the style of Niels Vanderpool. They actually have more what researchers call complexity to their identity. They have multiple rooms to their house. The second thing is, in just about every case of catastrophic failure, we see a complete fusion of identity to pursuit. Mm. I think of Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, uh, Lance Armstrong, whatever you think of him now, when he was in peak asshole mode, and I, you know, not everyone feels this way, but I do because I know people whose life he just ruined. Uh, his entire identity was cycling. So first, you can be great at what you do without tying your identity completely to it. Research actually says you probably have a better chance of being great at what you do. And second, you're less likely to become a jerk if you have multiple components to yourself. <laughs> and I think both of those things are really important. 
for the the marathon runner that it's a big part of their life and it's a big part of their community, I think that's great. The caution is from tying up too much of yourself as being a runner. And I know this firsthand, right? Like I was a big part of the running community. I still am, even though I'm not running competitively. I'm not pushing myself anymore because my body won't let me. But when I first realized that it's called exertional compartment syndrome, what I have, when I realized like it was basically stopping me from running, it was really disorienting. I remember like feeling true shocks of panic and anxiety, just like walking down the street, seeing other runners. Because I'd be like, well, if I'm not like a runner, then what am I? Who am I? And what I needed to do and what I ultimately did was zoom out and actually say, you know, what's actually a big part of my identity from this sport, it's two things. It's moving my body and athleticism. And there are multiple ways to do that beyond running. And then it's community. And ultimately, that helped me stay rugged and flexible as I worked through this injury. So we've talked about identity. The third part of the book is about action, rugged and flexible action. That's right. And this is around engaging with change. So when you start seeing change as this cycle of order, disorder, reorder, and you realize that change is just ever present in our lives, well, then the question becomes, how do you stay in conversation with it? How do you view change not as something that happens to you, but as something that you are participating in? And I think here, people tend to fall, again, to these two kind of extreme views when the answer, I think, is very much in the middle. So some people say that you should over control and that you have all of this agency and you should fix things and you know you are responsible for your actions and everything that happens in your life. And then the other extreme is the system is so big, everything is structural. Um, it's like you know throwing pebbles in the ocean actually trying to make a difference. And the truth is that for most changes in our life, for most significant things in our life, the answer is always in the middle, right? We generally have some agency. And perhaps it's not as much as we'd like. Sometimes it's more than we think we have, but we never have full agency. So the first question is, and all the great philosophers and all the great life philosophies acknowledge this, how can we try to deduce what we can control, separate it from what we can't control, and then focus on what we can? Epictetus, the Stoic, called this the dichotomy of control. In Buddhism, there's the parable of the two arrows. The first one you can't control, the second one you can. In mm -hmm. Christianity, there's the serenity prayer. I mean, this shows up in East, West, Judeo-Christian, Buddhism, Stoicism across the board. And I think that there's a reason that it shows up so broadly, because like I was saying, for most things, like there's some things we can't control and there's generally some stuff that we can. So then what does it mean to skillfully engage with that that we can control? And I think the most important thing to try to practice here is what I call responding, not reacting. And I define reacting as being very rash emotionally hot, uh, like you snap, you tend to regret reacting. It might feel good in the moment, but very quickly after you're like, man, why did I do that? <laughs> Whereas responding is slower. It's more thoughtful. It's more discerning. It's more deliberate. There's more space between a change in your circumstances and what you do about it. Another very famous quote attributed to Viktor Frankl, you know, there's a space between stimulus and response. And in that space is where our freedom lies. Um, so it's really about creating space to make a wise decision. And every book like this has to have a very practical framework, I've been told. So I've included one in mine. <laughs> and I do think it's helpful. So the framework is two Ps versus four Ps. So when we react, we follow two Ps. Uh, we panic and then we pummel ahead. And when we respond, we follow four Ps. So we pause, we take stock of what's happening, we process, uh, we make a plan. 
So we say, what are our skills, resources, capabilities? How can we bring them to bear? And then only then do we proceed. Mm. And what I love about this is the four Ps, it's literally an elongated stretch. So it's creating that space to then decide what to do. So how might this manifest in your running life? Uh, you have an injury. Well, are you going to react to it by either pretending it's not there or completely freaking it out or saying that I'm going to like do something that so many runners do and I don't understand why, which is like double down on training. It's like, well, I'm starting to get injured. So like I might as well like get the full adaptation of this workout because <laughs> I know I'm going to have to miss six months anyways. <laughs> to me, that's very reactionary. Or are you going to respond? Kind of say like, hey, like this is what's happening in my body right now. Here's where my goal is. Here's what my plan calls for. Where am I going to need to adjust? Uh, this often happens in races, especially distance races. You run through an aid station. What a perfect example. Are you going to react and freak out and go on autopilot or are you going to respond? Are you going to say, you know, maybe I actually do need to go back there and take 30 seconds off my time now to make sure I get some nutrition or maybe not. Maybe it's early enough in the race. Maybe I've trained. Maybe I realize that whether I have 300 calories or 200 calories an hour actually doesn't matter. Um, but it's just having the state of mind to make that quick analysis, you tend to make better decisions than when you just instinctively freak out. Right. And I think that when a person has just like one goal for a race, and if like they realize at some point, you know, maybe mile 20, that their time goal is out the window, and then they just are defeated and they just walk it in. But if you go into it with like layered goals, and so A goal obviously is not going to happen. Let's focus on B goal. You know, you're responding really thoughtfully and working with the changes that are happening all around you. That's right. Uh, and I think that's what's so nice about running is there's just so many opportunities to practice this. You could practice this in most workouts. You go out and the workout calls for seven minute pace and you see your first two miles are at eight minutes. Well, what an opportunity to respond and react. It doesn't matter what you do, but just being thoughtful about it. Like the thing not to do is to freak out. <laughs> the thing to do is to say, hey, am I feeling a little bit sick today? Am I under the weather? Do I need to accept that that's just what I have? Or was that just a poor start to the workout? Do I need to try to ratchet it up? And each time you go through this process, you might make a different decision, but what matters is going through the process. On a race, you go out too fast. You know, you run those 630s when you're supposed to go out at 645. Again, do you freak out? Do you say, well, the next mile I need to ratchet down to 730? Or do you say, I'm feeling really good today. I'm going to stick with this. Again, I don't know what the answer is, but just having the presence of mind to quickly be responsive instead of freaking out because freaking out is almost never helpful. And once you <laughs> learn to take that pause, you start to notice the things in life that are the freakouts. Certain people, you, their energy is like freakout mode all the time. And you start <laughs> to realize like, I need to build some boundaries around my time with this person because they are just draining me. Or like the news, I feel like the news is just one big freakout 24 seven, you know? <laughs> yeah, you talk about that in your book. <laughs> I do. And I'm glad that you mentioned that, Angie. Thanks. Because I think that those freakouts around us tend to rub off on us. So I talked a lot about like the inside game of responding, not reacting. So practicing that muscle of pausing, processing, planning, and then proceeding. But then there's also everything happening around us. And if we're constantly in reactive environments, if we spend all day on social media, watching cable news, hanging out with people that are really reactionary, it's going to rub off on us and we're going to become reactionary. So if we can prime ourselves to be a more responsive person by spending more time with responsive mediums, um, I think it goes a long way. I know in my own life, when I spend time reading a book, a hard copy book, not on a screen, and I spend time in the gym or in nature hiking without my phone on me, and then my kid melts down or my dog has diarrhea or whatever it is, 
I am so able to respond and handle that gracefully versus a day when I've been on social media all day or God forbid it's like a presidential you know debate that I'm like doom watching. <laughs> I'm reactionary. I'm more likely to like snap at my kids in a way that I regret. And it's the same me, but it's what have I done to prime myself? And I think that it makes a huge difference. That term now, doom scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> on social media. Yeah, it's a thing. I'm not someone that says we should all get off social media. It's a huge part of my work. It's how I meet readers. So it's certainly not all bad. There's actually a lot that's good. I think the question is, like any tool, how can we try to use the tool to benefit and not to harm? Mm-hmm. You know, if you use a hammer to hit a nail when a nail needs hammering, you're really glad you have a hammer. If you turn around and hit yourself in the head with a hammer, you're not using the hammer wisely. And I feel like we do some version of that to ourselves when we doom scroll and get sucked into the social media rabbit hole. So everyone should pare down their social media use. Curate your feed. Block everyone except at Brad Stolberg <laughs> and at Marathon Academy. <laughs> Listen to the at Marathon Academy podcast and read the at Brad Stolberg book and you'll set you yourself go. up to respond to everything life throws your way. <laughs> right. We are your cult leaders. <laughs> Quick word of thanks to our sponsor, Ola Dance. They make wearable stereo earbuds. They don't go inside your ear. They just fit on top of the ear. It helps you prevent hearing loss. And also, you can still hear what's going on around you, which is safer for, you know, running, especially in traffic. And because they don't go in your ear, you don't get that ear fatigue. So they're really nice if you listen to a lot of audio every day. I love listening to my audiobooks. I try to go back to my old earbuds occasionally just to see what they're like. And they are inferior, <laughs> not going back. Um, so you can get that true comfort the amazing sound and the safety because you're not losing track of what's happening around you with the Ola Dance wearable stereo. Yeah, check them out, oladance.com. See why we love them. Use the promo code MTA20 for 20% off. Give you a little discount there. Oladance.com. Look for the wearable stereo, open earbuds, especially if you listen to audio for two hours a day or more. They're must haves. Oladance.com. Use the code MTA20 for 20% off. Here's an unrelated question since Angie said cult leaders. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a guy that studies psychology. How easy do you think it would be to start a cult? For me, it'd be very hard because I can never like be a cult leader. But I think that it's very easy to start a cult. The playbook is out there. We've seen it done, unfortunately, really, really well at the highest levels of American life. So I think that it's not too hard. I think there are like these facets, right? It's inside information. I know something that you don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, there's a kernel of truth or believability or like the word may. You know, these things may hurt you. This may not be the case. Um, and then it is us against them. And it's making people feel meaning and belonging. But ultimately, you're like out to grift them because all of these so-called cult leaders at the end of the day, like you dig deep enough and they're selling something. Uh, whatever it is they're selling is what's going to help you avoid the coming of the end of the world or whatever it is that uh, that they've set out to propagate. But, you know, bringing it back to the book, because it's in there a little bit, and I never thought we'd end up here, but here we are. This is the <laughs> first interview on the book that I've talked about cults. But um, during times of accelerated change and disorder, when you look across history, that is when you tend to see demagogues, grifters in essentially cults really mm -hmm. proliferate. So I think that it is something that is also not surprising that we're seeing a lot of right now because we are going through a lot of change. 
there was this pandemic. Some people don't believe that it actually happened. I'm someone that does believe that it actually happened. I was there. There is right. There is the, the the there is pretty clear evidence that the climate is changing in a way that is unprecedented. Um, artificial intelligence is on the horizon. We've only lived with social media for twenty years. The internet is only like thirty years old. So we are living in a time of really accelerated change. And I think that another appeal of demagogues, cult leaders, charlatans, whatever you want to call them, is they kind of promise like insulation from the disorder. You know, take the yeah. supplement and you'll be fine. Join this movement and you'll be safe. You'll be secure. So it's not surprising that we see a rise in these things um, during times of change. One time when there was just enormous proliferation of what today we would call the grift or charlatans was when Copernicus realized that the universe doesn't revolve around the earth. <laughs> and there was a huge proliferation of all of these cults and grifters that essentially sold security amidst that big change in how we understood ourselves in the universe. Uh, but that was a time of then a lot of hearsay. And in, in a way, you could argue that that kind of mirrors some of our politics today, which is just crazy, you know, how history just repeats itself. So really getting back to change and developing rugged flexibility is a great way to insulate yourself from being deceived, you know, and jumping off the edge of some of these movements that will suck the life out of you. I've heard that like uh, we think of uh, survival of the fittest, but really it's survival of the most adaptable is what evolution favors. I would agree. I think that evolution is real and I think there are spiritual ways of interpreting it and more agnostic ways of interpreting it. But I'm going to make the assumption that, that most people think that we got here in a path of scientific evolution. When you think about species that have survived and thrived over a long period of time, evolutionary biologists, they constantly identify these two core elements. One is they have strong essential features. So these are things that do not change completely, because if these things did change completely, the species would no longer be recognizable. So this is their source of ruggedness. But then on everything else and on how they apply those features, they are extremely flexible. So I think rugged flexibility, and I write about this in the book, like you see it on an evolutionary scale. Mm -hmm. And then you zoom in and you say, all right, that's really, really grand. Let's think about it on an individual scale. And I think a profound example of this is Roger Federer. So Roger Federer, one of the greatest athletes of all time, also just dominant deep into his career. He was winning major championships at age 37, 38 in a sport that prior to Federer, most people peaked in like their late 20s. But Federer went through a time when he was almost like in evolutionary terms taken out of the environment. So between age 33 and 36, aging had caught up to him and the game had changed a lot. And Federer was in a real rut. He didn't win a major championship. He was constantly needing to drop out of tournaments. He couldn't string together good training. And Federer essentially stepped back and said, well, my essential features or my ruggedness, love for the game, commitment to excellence and competition, but nothing about how he played was a source of his ruggedness. So what did he do in those three years? He completely reinvented his game. He learned a one-handed backhand to take speed off the ball. He started playing at the net more to shorten points. He revamped his training, so he built in more time for recovery. He did something that is so sacrilegious for a world-class, world champion tennis player, which is he gave up the racket that made him the best in the world to start using a new technologically developed racket that all the young kids were using. And Federer talks about this, how he himself didn't really change. Like He's still Roger Federer, the fierce competitor, but so much about 
how he exerted those values, how he played the game, he had to adapt and change. Uh, so I think he's a paragon of this kind of like evolutionary approach to rugged flexibility. On the one hand, he's really rugged, but man, did he have to be flexible to come back from injury and to deal with aging to stay atop a sport that, again, normally selects people out in mm. evolutionary terms when they hit their 30s. I like it. Yeah, I enjoyed reading that in the book, too. I used to play tennis. I had to quit because I couldn't stand the racket. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's funny. That's a good dad joke. I should tell that to my kids. <laughs> so when you write about someone like Roger Federer in the book and all these other great examples, do you ever email them and be like, hey, I mentioned you in my book, Roger? So sometimes I actually get in touch with these people before and like I get to report out and talk to them, which That's is cool. really fun. Sometimes I don't because they're busy and there's gazillions of writers and talk show hosts and everyone that wants to talk to them. And in a way, it makes my job easier because if I'm just quoting them of what's already on record, then I can really be defensible. It's like he said this in a press conference. Here's the press conference. So the short answer is I I have not heard from Roger Federer, though I would love to. However, a real fun story is um, Niels Vanderpool. Niels, I couldn't get in touch with, right? There's like a language barrier. We're in different parts of the world. Uh, He's not really on the internet at all. Um, So I tried, but like just no luck. But someone sent me a picture the day after my book came out from Sweden. There's this swim run race called the Attilo. And Niels was at the race holding up my book. Wow. Serious. And then there was a quote in a different language. And of course, I'm like, oh, what did he say? (laughs) And like, I go over to Google Translate and he's like, this is very good. It's nice. Which from like, you know, a Swede is any like of these Nordic athletes. Like, it's good. It's nice. That's about as much of a compliment as you're going to get. He's like gushing, basically. (laughs) Yeah. So that was cool. And then I got the backstory. I did a little digging and it turns out one of my longtime readers here is a guy named Gordo Bird. And he competes at this race in the Otillo. And he and his wife had immediately got the book like right when it came out. And when he was doing this eight hour all day race, he gave the book to Niels. And I don't even know if he knew that Niels was in the book. And then Niels just read the book instead of watch the race. Um, So like those are the moments that just for me make this all like that's the validation I'm here for. Can you imagine picking up a book and then like finding yourself in it? couple pages and you're like, what? (laughs) Yeah, you just got to win a double world championship and then um, write very philosophically about it. (laughs) Well, it's been great talking to you, Brad, Mm -hmm. as always. People want to become a master of change and also learn more about you. Where can we send them? Uh, Best place is to your bookstore or Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, wherever you get the book. Uh, The best way to learn more and really get into the weeds on these topics is to read the book. And then um, my website is just my name at Brad Stahlberg. And then that is also where I'm at on Instagram. And I will say you post very helpful, just great content over on Instagram. I try. Not (laughs) contributing to the hype and hysteria. (laughs) I do what I can. Well, I really appreciate you all. Uh, I always enjoy talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed the conversation with Brad Stolberg. Really fun talking to him again and all kinds of little bonus, you know, uh, topics that we explored there, cults and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I really like the framework, the universal wisdom pattern of order, disorder, reorder in stories. You know, it's the, it's the classic hero's journey story. If we were watching a movie and it all didn't have a happy ending, like it didn't end with reorder, we probably feel like we didn't get our money's worth. So Angie, looking back on your running, 
you've probably seen periods of disorder, <laughs> right? You've run for long enough, it's going to happen. Yeah, this the book really gave me a very helpful new framework to look at multiple areas of my life. But, you know, in particular, this podcast, we're talking about running um, because you are never going to get back to the runner that you used to be. But that doesn't mean that by navigating change successfully, by building that rugged flexibility, that you can't come back as a stronger, more flexible, more uh, joyful runner. Yeah, so we hope this was um, a big help to everyone listening. And we'd like to invite you over to MTA if you want help navigating the disorder and bringing order into your training, something that our coaches are experts at doing. If you feel like you're not hitting your paces, if your fueling is off, or maybe the the times you've been running uh, are not what you want, and you feel like you need some outside perspective and a shot of new energy into your training, you can find out more about how coaching works and how a coach is able to structure your plan and help guide you through those ups and downs. Look for the coaching page on our website, marathontrainingacademy.com. We just love helping clients navigate those changes and bring order out of chaos, as they say. Coach Nicole on our team would be happy to speak with you if you wanna just chat and get some immediate help with whatever you're dealing with. We have actually a page where you can sign up for a free call, marathontrainingacademy.com. And over there, we'll have the show notes to this episode, the link to Brad's book, and everything that was mentioned. So that's it for now. Until next time, stay safe out there. And remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my